0: Welcome back, listeners, to the Bits and Bricks podcast. Uh, we wrapped season one a while ago, but we haven't quite dropped into season two yet. So why are we here, Brian? Rawr. Pew, pew, pew pew, pew. Brian, pew, pew. Brian, what are you doing?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm providing scene-setting sound effects for your oh, announcement.
0: Great, yes. Happy May the 4th, everyone. Pew, we might as well pew, pew, pew. Yeah, pew. we might as well just get that out of the way. Yes, it's May the 4th. And before Brian tries to do his R2D2 screech, let's hop into this one off special episode. But make sure you come back later in the month for a full fledged return of Bits and Bricks Season 2. Bits and Bricks. Welcome to Bits and Bricks, a podcast about all things LEGO games. I'm Ethan Vincent. And I'm Brian Crescenti. Together, we look back at the rich 25-year history
1: of LEGO games, chat with early developers and seasoned studios who have all tackled the creation of video games for one of the most popular and respected toy companies in the world, the LEGO Group.
2: And race.
0: Good morning, Brian.
1: Hey, Ethan. How are you? Uh, I know you've been been doing a lot of uh, globe trotting this month. So, how are things?
0: Oh man, it's been kind of crazy. I've been, of course, been away from my home on film production, doing a little documentary series. And it's been almost seven weeks. Wow. So I've spent all this time traveling around the U.S., uh, you know, even to New York, right? Yes. Yeah, that was great. It was, you know, it's funny. We we finally met yeah. uh,
1: and had a lovely dinner. Uh, I, I cannot <laughs> believe that this month was the first time we have ever met in person in two years of working together.
0: Yeah, just great to see you, man. And boy, uh, that was a fantastic dinner. Good choice. Yes, the moose. Oh, Yes, lava cake. Yes. I had the lava cake.
1: It's probably too early though, to be talking about
0: delicious, delicious chocolate desserts. Yes. So what should we be talking about this week, my friend?
1: Well, uh, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, all of the George Lucas goodness rolled up neatly into a collection of digital Lego brick wonders.
0: Yes. Star Wars, Indiana Jones. Who does not know those, first of all, and second of all, just how amazing and great those films are. You know, I'm pretty aware of George Lucas and Lucasfilm, but- what can you tell me about, you know, how he got into video games? You know, it's a really interesting history that dates all the way back to
1: 1979 when George Lucas recruited Ed Catmull from the New York Institute of Technology to head the Lucasfilm Computer Division. Mm -hmm. The division was formed to focus on non-linear film editing, digital sound, and graphics. Yeah. A computer games team was later created within the division in 1982. And then in 1986, the graphics group was sold to Steve Jobs, who renamed it, well— Let me guess. Pixar? You got it. Pixar. The folks behind Toy Story, Monsters Incorporated, The
0: Incredibles, and on and on and on. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Pixar movies are amazing. Um, You know, and well-loved, of course. I I think about the influence Pixar had on the early uh, strategic product unit Darwin Group. Um, You think about how they, you know, looked at these early Pixar movies and said, hey, why don't we do that with the Lego brick? Why don't we do that with Lego DNA? Why don't we create a little Lego movie? You know, it, of course, was a huge influence for them. So, one of the things I thought was really cool is, you know, in September of 2009 at the uh, Biennale Venice Film Festival, uh, all the executives, you know, John Lasseter, Andrew Staten, you know, Brad Bird, all those guys, they were granted the Golden Lion for Lifetime Achievement Award, and it was granted to them by Lucasfilm founder George Lucas. So, it kind of goes full circle here. Yeah, so the
1: other half of that group, uh, the Lucas Computer Division, became Lucasfilm Games Group mm-hmm. and they worked with Atari which helped fund the group. Because of that that funding, Atari actually got the license for Star Wars video games. So the Lucasfilm Games Group in, instead of working on Star Wars properties mostly focused on creating original titles. Mm-hmm. And and I think frankly the entire world is is very happy that happened because yeah. it brought us an amazing list of games including the fantastic Maniac Mansion, Habitat, Labyrinth, The Secret of Monkey Island, and, you know, I I could just keep naming games. Yeah. Yeah, but didn't they also make some early Indiana Jones games? Yeah, they did, actually. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade hit in 1989, and Indiana Jones and the Fate of
0: Atlantis was in 1992. Yeah, you know this is really interesting, Brian, because you think about the Lucasfilm's Games Group, and they're doing all these great games, but but like you said, they they're not doing Star Wars. Uh, when when did that start up again? Were they able to kind of you know get back to that? Yes, yeah, so the, the first in-house Star Wars game was the
1: excellent space combat simulator X-Wing, which went on to spawn a beloved series. Uh, then in the mid-90s, they started making first-person shooters with Star Wars Dark Forces and then Jedi Knight Dark Forces Two. Uh, the franchise got a, a very successful series of role-playing games with Knights of the Old Republic in the 2000s. And they even had a massively multiplayer online game in 2003 with Star Wars Galaxies.
0: Again, really fascinating history, just video game history. I love it. How does this all come together, Brian? Well, it's it's interesting. Uh, it's all really about the context. Mm-hmm. So
1: LucasArts is in the midst of this sort of renaissance of Star Wars video games. They're turning out massive hit after massive hit for fans of hardcore gaming. Mm-hmm. In 2004 alone, the studio released five games, four of them based on Star Wars properties. Mm-hmm. And in 2005, they released six more games from Mercenaries Playground of Destruction to Star Wars Battlefront Two, 2005 also happens to be the year that LEGO Star Wars the video
0: game hit. Aha, there's the connection. And, you know, I, I look back at the episode we did on this and these, these early beginnings, uh, you know, with Giant Interactive. Super fascinating. And just an incredible story of also how this game came to be. Right, and this history mm-hmm. of these tremendous successes by LucasArts at the time
1: with these sort of very gritty, action-oriented games goes a long way in explaining the early internal reaction to the Lego group coming up to LucasArts and saying they want to make a video game based on
0: a Star Wars property. Yeah, I can only imagine, like, here you are making first-person shooters and massively multiplayer online games and, and, and tactical games, right? And all of these titles aimed at adult fans of Star Wars, people who really live and breathe for the franchise, and suddenly along comes, you know, the Lego group with this game. Yeah, exactly. And on top
1: of that, you have to look at the Lego group's history at the time. Even though the company had been making video games for a decade by the time Lego Star Wars the video game came out, with a couple of exceptions, they were basically very different than that massive hit, the Lego Star Wars game.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, they had obviously done LEGO Loco, LEGO Friends, LEGO Racers, uh, LEGO Bionicle. Uh, a lot of these games were viewed, I think, on some level as an extension of the marketing arm of the LEGO Group. Maybe not, you know, by its like gaming merits, you know? Right. And, and on top of that, they definitely skewed toward a much younger
1: audience. So you take LucasArts and its tremendous success with teen friendly, adult friendly, hardcore games. Yeah. And here comes the LEGO Group with a history of children and family games. And at least internally, to be frank, there was a lot of initial doubt about what would come of it.
0: To be frank, right? So you aren't frank normally, Brian? Uh, yeah. So,
1: okay, <laughs> to be blunt. <laughs> the, so to be blunt, internally at LucasArts, the very first TT game, Lego Star Wars the video game, was sort of brushed off initially. Yeah. It was seen as a marketing stunt. Yeah. Something that certainly wouldn't have any major
0: impact on anything Lucas was doing on its side. Yeah, but boy, did that change. I mean, that's that's remarkable, that change.
1: Yes, and, and very quickly. And that brings us to today's episode. Matt Schell, director of brand marketing at Lucasfilm Games, and Matt Philibrant, executive producer in charge of product development at Lucasfilm Games, wanted to tackle this interview together because they've worked basically side-by-side side forever on these titles.
0: Yeah, and boy, do they have great chemistry. That was so fun, Brian, you know, to hear how you know this worked out and, and how they managed to turn so many emot- Motive, amazing moments in the films into these poignant but, you know, also family-friendly moments made of Lego bricks. Yes, all that and more in this interview. So, let's have a listen.
3: My name is Matt Shell. I'm the director of brand marketing at Lucasfilm Games. Um, yeah, so I uh, went to college for business and marketing, and uh, graduated and started working at a strategic design and marketing firm. And Sega was one of our one of our clients. And I went to my first meeting there, and I said, "My God, I got to work at this place. This is the coolest coolest job I've ever I've ever seen." And uh, I got a job there and worked there for a little bit. And uh, when my department was was laid off. I said, there's only two jobs that I think I could go to next that would make me happy. One of those was hosting The Tonight Show, which didn't seem like a real feasible option. And the other was working for Star Wars. And that was, God, probably 16, 17 years ago. And I've been here in a number of different roles throughout the last 15 years or so.
2: I'm Matt Philbrandt. I'm the executive producer in charge of product development at Lucasfilm Games. I actually worked at a law firm, but with the intention of going to law school, but after uh, having worked with attorneys in a, in a high-pressure law firm environment, I decided that probably wasn't a good path for me to take, and I wanted to try to get into something more creative. I was a huge video game fan, and so I had frequently been going to the Lucasfilm website, and lo and behold, a position opened up at LucasArts in the legal department. Um, had a lot of similarities with things that I'd been doing at that time in corporate law, and uh, took a chance... Applied for the position and ended up getting it with the mindset of knowing that I wanted to do something else. I didn't know what at that time, but I just wanted to get my foot in the door at Lucas. And uh, I made a transition over to production uh, back, I started there back in 1999. So I've been with the company for now like 22 years, I guess. And it's been a great ride so far.
1: When when did you, uh, both of you, I'm curious, when did you first hear about... TT Games working on a Lucasfilm property um, and uh, what were your thoughts when you first heard that they, there was going to be this sort of team up and, and, and the Lego group was involved?
3: Yeah, I, I think that's probably more along uh my timeline at, at LucasArts. This is Matt Shell speaking. You know, if you remember we were working on all sorts of different games, uh, you know, fl- flight games like Secret Weapons over Normandy and and uh, Armed and Dangerous and the old Republic games and there were you know, one of the uh, my boss had come to me and told me that I was going to be working on this new Lego Star Wars game and to be honest, I think we all were kind of like, uh, you know, huh? Like that didn't make a a whole lot of sense for us, given the other types of games we were working on, given what our audience looked like, uh, given the direction of the company. And so that that project came over to me primarily because um, it was really just a marketing relationship at the time. It, we were not publishing that game, so you know, we we knew about TT. We we had a. Very few conversations, and mostly it was just about working on sort of that creative, uh, the creative elements for the game with IDOS, uh, and and working as more the the license holders on the title more so than we were from a production or marketing standpoint. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You raise that an interesting point. If you look at sort of a
1: snapshot of sort of the year before and the year of that game's release. No one would have expected a a Lego game to come from one of the properties because you had the Battlefront games, you had Knights of the Old Republic, you had Mercenaries, Empire at War. So those are all T and up rated games that are certainly, like you said, they're sort of meant for a particular, I think, a very particular sort of audience. And then along comes this game that is... At least at first blush, seems like it's tied directly to a much younger audience.
3: Yeah, well, first off, you, you gotta you gotta love those titles that you mentioned. Those were those were really exciting and fun times for us working on things like Mercenaries was was really a hoot. Yeah, if you remember, the Lego Star Wars game was sort of the first of these movie type. Games that you know had that Lego spin on them, um, but before that, when we were thinking about Lego games, you were you were talking about you know little kid games and right. little builders and and you know games that took advantage of the Lego generic minifigs, uh, and there was it was nothing like the the Lego games that we know today. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, yeah, there's obviously well before then, but Lego
1: Island and then there were like uh, a bunch of other games sort of around that time Lego Loco, Lego Racers but they were all definitely sort of more tied to the theme sets and more tied to a much younger audience. So on the one hand you've got uh, LucasArts doing titles that are sort of much more teen and adult and on the other you have the Lego group doing titles that are much younger and theme set themed and then The output is something that doesn't match either of those, which is, I think, really fascinating.
3: Yeah, I think anybody that says we heard about making Lego Star Wars the video game and thought, "Oh, this is going to be a huge hit," and this is makes perfect sense, you know, I'd be the first to tell you they were lying, (laughs) because that that was not exactly the first thought that any of us had. You know, it it took a lot of convincing, and there were a lot of a lot of conversations that happened in order to. To convince us that this is really, you know, going to be the match made in heaven as it's turned out to be. Matt, uh, this is Ethan here. I I think that it's interesting what you said about,
0: you know, not too many people having that foresight about the potential success. Uh, But I also remember in putting another episode of Bits and Bricks Together on TT Games that Brian and I heard the story of one of the producers at Lucasfilm Games uh, getting these builds and and looking at them, you know, doing check-ins on them, and with every successive build that came in, you know, more and more people were showing up to play it and, and crowding around behind this person and by the end it was like a sudden realization at least you know among the developers that there's this really fun game there and uh, I guess my question is 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 this an urban myth or, or is that true?
3: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we certainly we certainly grew with the game, you know, as we were getting a better understanding of it and seeing how all this sort of magic came to be, you know, the that fun and tongue-in-cheek nature of the game, the the whimsy of the game. You really don't understand it until you see it. It's not the kind of thing that can be described really easily, and translates to something that makes people go, "Oh yeah, that you know, that's a great idea. That makes perfect sense." And so, once people started getting their hands on it, seeing it, getting videos of the gameplay and the cutscenes, I I think it really started to translate to something that made sense for all of us. Now, Matt Philbrandt, what was your first
1: sort of? Realization that there was a, a Lego game in the works or a TT game with one of the properties?
2: Um, you know, people I think were, were familiar with the fact that the Lego group had been working with uh, Lucasfilm Licensing to put out the physical brick set since about the late 90s. And so there were, and that proved, I think, to be quite successful. And so you could sort of imagine, it wasn't like, you know, this was the first time that, that the Lego group and Lucasfilm and Star Wars had done something together so you start to think about the sets that you might have been familiar with and how those were going to come to life in animation and how are they going to do that with this you know this hard plastic bits and how are the characters going to work and so i think that was like a very interesting thing because most of the people that i know that are in gaming or have had kids remember their time with lego as kids uh, that's kind of a magical time uh, in in your sort sort of coming of age, and uh, it sort of awakened uh, this playfulness, I think, in all of us that there could be something pretty fun there to be able to interact with those elements and relive uh, elements of the the various trilogies through that medium in a in a totally unique and in in a way that's completely ownable to these series of games that you really don't get anywhere else. I think.
1: When you look at that first game, one of the things that really stands out in my mind is the fact that it it sort of minted a very specific type of humor that uh, TT Games was able to to use throughout all of the properties, the Lego games that they've come out with since, which seems to appeal both to children and adults. Uh, and I'm just curious, you know, they're sort of doing this on the fly with this first game. Do you think that it, uh, did it sort of translate well when it came to those
2: Star Wars and indie properties? Or like, do do you feel like that was a a struggle initially? From my perspective, I I think it worked. I I mean, I I think it it was so kind of fresh and new from that perspective that, you know, kind of hats off to Howard Rothman for taking a chance with something like this that really hadn't been done before with an IP and had the vision to see... You know, potentially building off of the success of the brick uh, physical brick side of the business, that there could be something special here, and uh, you know, I think because of that sense of humor, you know, hats off to John Burton and the folks at TT at the time that were able to kind of bring their vision and, and that whimsical element to this property that that married uh, what effectively is a you know a really a kid's. Toy and sort of the ability to break things apart and build things and all those different elements in a way that was that was so compelling.
3: Yeah, I think just to just to add to that, Matt sort of hints at it, but I think that humor that you talk about is really what allows this game to cross so many barriers and and boundaries uh, of its audience. You know, and it is a kids' game. You know, and it does primarily. Uh, Speak to 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 kids um, in in the type of gameplay, but the humor is what allows adults and you know different different um, demographics to to find this enjoyable to play on their own. Like this isn't you know you'd think it would just be a game that kids would play or maybe parents would play to introduce their their kids. To Star Wars, but plenty of adults find it really enjoyable, and I think primarily because of that humor aspect. You know, the the little, the little, you know, um, you know, putting things on their head a little bit and telling just a slightly different story with a humor, humorous Mm -hmm. bent to it, uh, really allows it to reach a much different audience.
0: So, Brian, what I'm hearing both Matt saying here in this interview, too, is, is just how skeptical and surprised they were about Lego Star Wars, the video game. Right. But, but I'm reminded of, you know, that they weren't the only ones. There, there were people who bankrolled the game, even potential publishers who seemed disinterested in the idea behind the game.
1: Yeah, that's true. Uh, You know, in fact, uh, we did an interview with Tom Stone, uh, who uh, was the founder of Giant Interactive, which was the studio that was later bought out by Traveler's Tales to become TT Games. He talked a lot about what it was like to sort of shop this
0: game around before it had a publisher. And we we chatted with a bunch of people about those early years at TT and about Lego Star Wars the video game back in Episode 9 in Bits and Bricks Season 1. Let's take a listen. You know, it's easy to
1: forget when you talk about game development how many people how many ideas, how many long nights are involved in creating a game? Mm-hmm. Um, Burton tells us that much of those core ideas tied to sort of the foundational work of this game and, and in turn, sort of all the games that came after it came from people like John Hodgkinson and James Cunliffe and, and Jeremy Pardon. He said he, he liked the idea of having this, uh, having a lot of different characters in the game, each with their own abilities. Uh, because it, uh, of something that he he saw and played on an old ZX Spectrum, uh, this old game called Thunderbirds. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so that's where some of that inspiration came from. So anyway, once the deal was made and Traveler's Tales uh, were deep into development of the game, Giant Interactive still had one really big issue they had to solve, and that was they needed to find someone who could publish and... and disseminate their game to retailers around the world.
4: We took a trip to Los Angeles, and we met with THQ, we met with Activision, and we met with Electronic Arts. We had already previously met with Ubisoft, and we would met with IDOS. Um, I, think, I think they were the five publishers that we met with. I, re- I then received a phone call from Activision at the time saying, really enjoyed uh, the demo but we don't think this game's going to succeed so we're not we don't want to be your distribution partner i got a similar phone call from thq saying yeah you know we think it's like an interesting idea but we don't think it's that big an idea so actually we don't want to be your distribution partner and then i and then because i'd worked for electronic arts i thought well they'll be on board um, you know and we'd already worked with Electronic Arts and some Lego stuff. I thought they might be on board. Um, they actually turned me down as well. So at this point, I was thinking, ooh, this, this could be interesting. So we've got this game that we were working on, developing it, and we're not going to be able to find a worldwide distribution partner. Anyway, Ubisoft and IDOS um, actually did say, they both said, we really believe in this and we'd love to um, work with you on it. And um, we decided to go with IDOS. Um, part of the reason we went with IDOS because we, they didn't have any other games, and we thought that they will give us all their attention, and we think that's really good for this. Um, I didn't want to be fifth on the list at, let's say, um, an Activision or a, a, another company. I'd, I'd I'd want to be at the top of their list. This is the most important game that we're going to release in 2005, and that. Was true for IDOS. That was their most important worldwide game in 2005. Um, you know, we we got attention in Japan. The game was released out over there. Um, it got an incredibly powerful release in Europe, and they did a fantastic job in North America. So that that's that's how that happened.
0: While they were able to find a publisher eventually it was touch and go. And for Tom Stone, it was very personal, you know. He had invested a lot of his personal funds and even put his house on the line to get the funding for Giant Interactive. And if they couldn't find a publisher, if the game didn't do well, you know, there was a very good chance he would have lost it. But Stone said he kept his spirits up during those dark moments of rejection by going back to watch children test the game as work continued on it.
4: I had young Gamers coming into the cottage where we worked. And I just listened to their response, their reaction. They were screaming with delight as they were being able to be these Jedi Knights slicing up um, the droids and anything made of Lego and uh, fighting each other. And they were dropping and dropping out two-player gameplay. And um, I just watched them and thought, this game's going to be successful. I just know it. Look at at the reaction of these eight-year-old kids who are playing this game. They absolutely love it. Don't care what adults think. These kids love it. Uh, And that was proven to be true. And I just, I listen to them rather than listen to the adults, if you like. (laughs)
0: That quote there from, from Tom Stone, Brian, I, I love it how he talks about that experience. And, and there's a lot more to hear in that season one, episode yeah. nine. So, so make sure you give that a listen if you haven't already. Mm-hmm. But now back to the two mats who are about to talk about stormtroopers in hot tubs and an award winning commercial about a brick bowel movement so absurd that it required not one, but two swear bleeps. One of the
1: things that, I mean, you both sort of touched on this, this sort of, there's this sense of irreverence that I feel like most people, if they came to Lucasfilm or came to any other uh, IP owner, they would say, "No, you can't do that." And the one, the example I think of is, uh, I think the very first. Well, maybe it's not the first one I saw, but it was certainly the one that stuck in my head. There's a scene in, I think it's Lego Star Wars Two, of uh, the original trilogy. Just a tiny little scene where you find these stormtroopers hanging out in a bathtub. And I remember when I saw that. First off, I thought it was hilarious. But like the very second thought I had was, how did they get that approved? And, and so I'm curious. Was that like, was that a struggle? Or and like when you saw these, were you like, oh no, you know, we can't do that. You can't have
0: stormtroopers hanging out in
1: a hot
2: tub. I can't speak to the initial approval of how it got in the initial game because I didn't I didn't work on that.
0: This is Matt Philbrand speaking.
2: Sometimes things like that are it's not always obvious that it's going to be a gag or a joke that is necessarily gonna work. I think the ones that we sort of have a, a philosophy when it comes to having uh, humor. Uh, with the with the Lucas with Lucasfilm IPs and our franchises, is that we want to have fun with it, but we don't want to make fun of it. So things like that, I think, uh, it's the kind of thing that you know. At least from my perspective, you might think, well, uh, you know, Stormtroopers hanging in a hot tub doesn't necessarily make sense in the Star Wars universe, but because of the Lego, it sort of works. And then you're like, well, it, it's just. It's obviously being satirical that you know you've got characters running around. There's mayhem all over the place, and you open a open a secret door, and all of a sudden you you find a bunch of uh, stormtroopers with their helmets on sitting in a in a hot tub. Just instantly uh, is a great gag that's just funny. So um, I know that's one that we have brought back and and done a bit of homage to in. Uh, the Force Awakens games, etc. And so, uh, you know, once it, when things like that work, you know, you want to like, you know, pay respect to them because they're they're so good.
3: Yeah, I think I'll just add, you know, our, our involvement back in two thousand five. This is Matt Shell. There was very little work for us to do other than, I mean, I, I I joke, but I I think my primary role in that title was a was getting the sticker approved, which had you know the the sticker that called out the the film episode three that the story elements from that movie were in the game. It was literally just a sticker on the cover of the box. And I think we worked on the key art and, you know, as time has gone on, we, we you know, we're now involved with every aspect, every joke, every story element um, that's included in the game. And so at the time, early on, it was much more a consumer products play and, and those humor and story elements that we uh, included years ago, we now, you know, are taking throughout the entire process from creation of the, the story and the jokes to the implementation in the games.
0: I have another question here. Uh, do, do any of you have any sort of favorite surprising scenes or gags in the Lucasfilm games library
3: that have been turned into Lego games? You know, there's there's tons of, of great moments in all the Star Wars games but I think my favorite actually belongs to Lego Indiana Jones. And that's when the, um, and, and Matt can tell a little bit of the behind the scenes of the story, but when the, when they open the Ark of the Covenant <laughs> and the disco ball comes out. And everybody starts disco dancing was a was an E3 demo moment I'll never forget and one, one of the more <laughs> enjoyable moments for me uh, yeah. as it as it relates to that franchise. Yeah, I mean, there's so many that it's really hard to
2: say exactly which one is your most favorite. I think uh, the ones that stick in my mind uh, uh, that some of the things we've used in, in teasers and had show up in cinematics in the game too. Or there's the Kylo Ren gag where he you know, throws out his his infamous lightsaber that has the three lightsaber blades on it, and, of course, it doesn't work, and he rattles it, and they, they keep going out different sides is a good one. Uh, at the, in, in the beginning of uh, The Force Awakens, when you play episode six level, and you have that dramatic moment where Luke and Darth Vader have fought the Emperor, and they're having Darth Vader's death scene, and he's asking him to take his helmet off, and he pulls his helmet off, and... Lo and behold, he's under there. Well, it's Anakin's head, so he has to shake the helmet and actually take off Anakin's head and put on the one of uh, no. uh, the dying Darth Vader. There's just you know, you can only do that uh, a gag like that with a Lego Star Wars game because it's not going to work anywhere else. And it's a way to uh, just you know have fun with the franchise and and uh, kind of you know you know somewhat. A, a wink and a nod to some of the history in the past and also just, you know, satirize it in a way that's just, is just brilliant. You, uh,
1: I've forgotten now which one of you was responsible for this in a good way, but you you guys were talking about a ad, that I think you even sent to me. I know you even sent to me, which is hilarious. But I'd love for you to describe it and explain. Did, I can't. Did this actually air this ad?
3: Oh yeah, yeah. This definitely aired, and I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna jump in before Matt Philbrant tries to take credit for my work because uh, I'm usually trying to take credit for his. So before he can even get a word in, I'm gonna say, yeah, this was absolutely me. This was Matt Shell talking. So there's no confusion. I don't want anybody to 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 give anybody else credit because this is one of the. Best moments of my career, I think, <laughs> at, um, at Lucasfilm, and uh, what you're referring to is what we very lovingly refer to as the Pooper Trooper spot. Nice. And uh, this was one we were we were doing, you know, 30 second spots for TV. I literally think I brought it up as a joke. Um, I don't I, this. I don't know about your audience here. Are we are we allowed to, allowed to swear? Um, you know what? Uh, we can beep you. So so go ahead, Matt. Uh, go ahead. Okay, well, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop one here for you because I literally said it would be funny if there was a way we could convey them to to shit a brick, because these are Lego <laughs> characters, right, and right. and you know, it's like it seemed obvious. How could nobody have ever come up with this before? So we worked with our agency to come up with a concept where the trooper literally. And I, if I think, if I remember correctly, one of the marketing pillars that we had for the game, uh, I. I you know, I should have prepared better for this. I, th- I think it was Lego Star Wars Three, and we were touting the boss fights. We were trying to think of different ways to highlight the boss fights, which we were bringing to the franchise, which we hadn't really had before. And so it seemed like a natural fit to have one of the troopers go up against a boss and then literally, you know, um, have a brick bow movement on screen. And they came up with this concept and I loved it. And I literally was, I've said, no matter what we do going forward, I'm gonna get this spot approved. Most people probably haven't been to Lucasfilm, but we've got some beautiful beautiful conference rooms at our campus and um, our exec conference room upstairs literally has a view of the Golden Gate Bridge. It's sitting in the pristine presidio. It's an all wood room with, you know, big leather chairs. And it's, it's it's like when you're a kid and you think of the most magical meeting you could ever have. It takes place in this room. And, you know, I'm in there and, and Howard Rothman was in there and our president at the time was in there and a bunch of execs from Lego. And I had to present this concept. And I I did what I what I said earlier. I literally presented as the, the character in a brick and there was complete silence in the room. And I don't think anybody knew how to react. It took a lot of convincing in that room, but I came out with an approval and uh, it was all systems go. We literally went downstairs and started production. And when this thing finally aired, I, I knew we had a winner. Lego Star Wars 3. In fact, I think that was the first acceptance speech I ever had to give was for the marketing awards we won for that spot. It was it That's was awesome. uh, it was a great great time, a great project and one that I am exceptionally proud of. It's the only project I've ever worked on that has included Lego poop. I can confidently tell you that. You could have had a whole backstory. Had
1: it be, you could have had it been a a red brick, and then you could say that he had beets for dinner the night before, and like it could have been a whole thing. But you didn't. You didn't.
3: You're hired. <laughs> that yes. is my kind of humor. What? So I, uh, I'd love
1: to talk about Lego Star Wars: The Force Awakens because I think. There's a lot of interesting things that happen in there and you have to tackle some pretty extreme scenes, including spoiler alert, maybe for someone out there. Uh, But you've got Han's death in the game. So how is it that you guys discuss that and, and how you are going to turn that into something that wasn't either going to be too much for a kid's game or sort of make fun of a scene in a way that would belittle it in some way?
2: Yeah. Uh, it's a great question because there's two things about this that were challenging. The first was that scene in the script reads that we were given uh, ahead of the film coming out, that scene was was considered uh, super, super secret. So we didn't actually know exactly what the scene was. We didn't know that that Han Solo was going to be killed uh, until the movie effectively came out. So we weren't able to even share that information with T.T. up until that point, only to tell them, you know, be ready to do something when we can show you more details about it because it was such a secret uh, part of the film. And then it was uh, very clear. We had many conversations with uh, with Howard Rothman at the time and other folks about how do we handle this scene Uh, Because there was a sentiment that it was too soon uh, with the game coming out so close to the movie launch that uh, trying to make light of it or have fun with it in too heavy-handed of a way was going to be kind of disrespectful to Han Solo's legacy as part of the franchise. So there was a a lot of conversation around how to handle that. And if I remember correctly, there was even some some issues with the Lego group side of it, where they have, you know, you're not supposed to penetrate a minifigure, so because of the way that that Kylo, spoiler, kills Han, um, we couldn't actually show it, and obviously it's very violent. uh, So there's just so many different complicated elements to this. But I think in the final execution, and I can even remember, you know, we we would take trips out to uh, uh, the... The TT Fusion Studio in the UK, and uh, we'd be out out to dinner at uh, having a team dinner after a day long meetings, and I'd be out on the sidewalk talking to Howard Rothman and Douglas about this scene specifically and what we could do with it and how we we're going to handle it. But ultimately, I think our ability to do it in a way that was appropriate for Lego Star Wars, knowing the audience is going to skew younger, uh, dealing with all the brand issues around it, but uh, we ultimately came up with this idea that you see. As Kylo and Han are sort of, you know, confronting each other and having this very dramatic conversation on this bridge, that you see these two stormtroopers that are sort of watching this interaction on the side, and uh, uh, when the, the the final blow is dealt, you know, one of the stormtroopers sort of swoons and falls over, so it gives it kind of a light touch, while still conveying some of the the drama of of that scene and and we used all the the VO from the film uh, cuz that that game was the first fully voiced Lego Star Wars game that had been done to that point point. and so uh, it's sort of like you have all the drama and the performance from the actors while obviously the Lego visuals accompanied with some of these other elements to try to take some of the serious elements out of it while getting it across, so um, it was very complicated. I think Brian and I have a
0: bunch of questions here, but I'm curious, were there other plot points you had to hold back and not tell TT Games until the movie was out? And I guess, did that have any impact on production?
2: Um, I think making a game in parallel with a movie that's in production is an extremely difficult undertaking because, you know, scripts, they get rewritten, there's changes, Characters are in, they're out, and, and the game lead times are so much longer. It takes uh, months and months and months to sit down and not only you know write all the the design documentation and pull this vision of how you're going to tell the story together, but as the movie works, sometimes shots come and go, and and you know you're making having to make changes on the fly, and so you know it was our job to try to keep them informed as best as possible, and there was a small group of people that were able to. You know, get script reads periodically throughout the process, and we kept them up to date. But it really wasn't until the movie came out, um, and you know, they basically saw all the, the little details. I'm sure there were or, were other details that um, I don't remember. I think if you even watch some of the making of video that can, comes out with the with the DVD uh, plug, <laughs> you you can uh, see that there are some deleted scenes uh, underneath Maz's castle and perhaps the implication, you know, that that character may have had, you know, force powers of different, you know, and and things like that, that, you know, we were potentially planning on some of those elements to be in the final cut of the film. And so the development team obviously has to rush, you know, keep ahead of that progress and make their best guesses about what they're going to do. And if something changes dramatically like that, then we have to cut it out of the game, which is can be unfortunate lost work for them. And 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 that's no fun uh, to have to, like, obviously go, hey, guys, you know, that thing you've been working on for however many long months, yeah, it's not in the movie anymore, so we need to change it.
1: Yeah. So I was going to ask about that. So the voices voicing in the game, then it sounds like, is a mix of the uh, tracks pulled from the movie, but you also have some of the people come in and either re say lines you need to, or give new content to you. Is that essentially right?
2: Yes. Um, you can't kind of go halfway. Right. It's really you know to get half the cast to come in and do stuff, but the other half to sound alike. So you know if you're going to use the stems from the films and things of that nature it all has to stand up next to each other because the sound alike as good as they might be isn't going to sound like the original actor. So, but luckily they were able to get all the principal players to come back and participate, uh, for the most part. And I think it really pays off in the storytelling and for fans to know that when they hear those lines, that's the real McCoy, uh, the Harrison Ford, um, et cetera, et cetera, that, is participating in this event to make it even feel more authentic, which is important to us as well. You mentioned the fact that this is, uh, obviously
1: it was a game based on a single movie, and that must have had some sort of impact beyond the fact that you know you you could go into more detail. You mentioned that you guys were able to do some of this filler, uh, not filler content, but fill in the, the gaps there between um, Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. Were there any other changes that you noticed because this was a game based on a single movie?
2: You know, the fidelity of the visuals was a leap forward for the for the Lego Star Wars franchise. Uh, clearly, T.T. had been, you know, doing that with other franchises. But, you know, in part, that's why I think, you know, leading off with episode six was uh, served multiple purposes, but uh, was a bit of a, hey, you know, look... You know, if, if you remember what the Complete Saga and some of the previous LEGO games where the classic content had been shown, look at what we can do now with this, the fidelity of the visuals, the storytelling. And honestly, the gameplay was a big conversation from the beginning in working with uh, Mike Taylor and the, and the folks at Fusion in like, how are we going to do something different? Because I think... There had always been, at least in my recollection, with the Lego Star Wars game franchise is we were always kind of the the first to do some of the new features that TT brought into their games. And so I think we were cognizant of trying to preserve that legacy. That's a big part of what Lucasfilm has been about as a technical innovation company in, in all forms of film and TV and things like that. And, and what kind of new gameplay elements can we add? And, and and we were able to do that with sort of cover-based gameplay, which hadn't been done uh, I don't think in any LEGO games at that point. And um, uh, so it was really trying to push on, you know, all different areas of the game to make it uh, a great experience and a retelling of the film and authentic from that standpoint, but just to be a great game in itself and, and, and push the entertainment quality level up as high as possible.
0: Okay, so we've, we've spent a lot of time here speaking with the two mats uh, about working with TT Games, but we wanted to kind of flip this a little bit too and hear from the other side of that collaboration and what that was like. That's why we invited Jonathan Smith, head of production at TT Games, to talk about the studio's skillful work with Lucasfilm. What has it been like working
1: with Lucasfilm in these amazing properties?
5: It's one of those questions that you ask. It it, it immediately captures so much of my life and the life here at TT for all of us over so many years that no immediate word is is grand enough, big enough, wide enough, deep enough to be able to respond without immediately sort of spiraling into encompassing everything that's come since the very first encounter on which so much of what we've done since has been founded with Lucasfilm and Lucasfilm Games for LEGO Star Wars uh, way back in 2002. So my hesitation there speaks to the depth of feeling that all of us have for that relationship, how important it's been for us, how proud we are to have been uh, given the gift of that relationship, Uh, and then to sustain and develop it further, game after game, year after year, from LEGO Star Wars uh, back in 2005 through LEGO Star Wars 2 and onwards through Indiana Jones and now into LEGO Star Wars, the Skywalker saga. At at all turns, uh, the teams at Lucas have been fantastic partners um, in every respect, Uh, fans of the games, with players' interests at heart, supportive of the teams, excited by the things we're trying to do, full of imagination um, and wit and the sort of charm that we find very important as we try to make these games that are fun and funny. And um, it's been nothing less than a delight to have their support and to be able to draw upon their expertise, not only in general terms when it comes to making games that are good and right and fun, but of course, in particular, when it comes to making games that are deeply rooted and expertly connected to the wonderful, wonderful universe of uh, Star Wars. So, you, uh,
1: it, it's interesting, you got obviously, you all have worked on quite a number of Lucasfilm properties. Um, I'm curious about one in particular, and that's The Force Awakens, uh, because that was one where, first off, there are a couple unusual things here. First off, you used uh, the some of or most of the same voice cast. You were producing this, developing this game while the movie was in production, or at least prior to the movie's release. And the movie had some stunning moments. And uh, so I'm, I have a lot of questions here, but I guess my first one is, how like, how, and when did you find out that Han Solo died?
5: <laughs> um, when we work on a film that's still in production, we're given progressive access through treatments to script readings, to follow-up sessions as the script changes, and then we get to see some of the early footage and uh, eventually some of the final footage uh, prior to the film, and every step of the way is always uh, a delight. There are always surprises. Um, as fans of the properties, we're always hanging on every moment, every, every slight detail and change we're, we're lapping up. Right. We'd speculated along the way where the bits that were left out from what we saw uh, could take the story, but of course, only when you see it a in black and white in, in the final script, and then and then b when you actually see it on screen, does it have the impact as wow. That's the way that the story has gone. This story that we we love that we're so connected to has now gone this way. It's um. Yeah, I mean, it gives me still gives me shivers to sort of like look look back on that experience and, and remember it. Did did having this sort of um, you know
1: moving target make it a lot more difficult, or was that something you're just sort of used to with with these sort of uh, games?
5: We've made a number of games where the movie that we're telling the story of is still in production, so the moving target, as it were, yeah, it is something that we're used to working with. And to be honest, quite enjoy because it's something that we have a pretty unique expertise in being able to deal with. So I guess our sense of specialness, TT can do this. TT can work with a movie even while it's still in development. TT can have good conversations with partners where they're trusted enough to be able to try things out uh, during a period of creative development for a big Hollywood movie. Is something that we are we we we're proud of and we treasure and, and therefore you know we do enjoy. So there
1: there are obviously a ton of properties. It does make me wonder why do you think that TT Games and the Lego Group fit so
5: well together? So the Lucas properties, Star Wars and Indie, have been fantastic fits for everything we love doing at TT Games storytelling with fun. Uh, And also, I think, really great fits for LEGO Company as well to support that through their shared sense of adventure, which gives the players lots of fun, exciting things to do in dramatic situations across a variety of different locations. But also imagination. The sense, particularly in Star Wars, that we're part of... An incredibly rich and diverse universe. And that, that imagination, that sense of you know, this, the wonder that creates, um, is entirely aligned with the freedom that Lego Company gives you in its, in its, all of its products, including the video games that we make. Yeah, I have a question. I've I've talked to several people, you know, younger
0: than me, of course, who tell me that their first encounter with Star Wars came when they played Lego Star Wars the video game. Uh, you know, that was their first kind of intro to the franchise. You know, it was through the game. And and to me, that's such a fascinating and, and different entry into this saga. I mean, how do you view your role in this incredible gaming company who first brought Star Wars to an entire generation, uh, you know, through your video game?
5: I mean, it's an incredible... Uh, honor and something that everyone who's worked on those games like, feels every day, to have been part of enabling players to encounter these wonderful universes for the first time, and to then establish their sense of what those universes can be and mean for them, their personal stories, the stories of the experiences that they had together with other players in their family or their friends at key moments. Yeah, is, is wonderful and, and absolutely keeps us keeps us going. It's interesting to look back on those first Lego Star Wars games in the context of a generation now whose, whose foundational memories of Star Wars are intimately connected with Lego Star Wars, the video game. Perhaps whose senses of what's important and interesting about culture is video games first. Um, there was something about the freedom that Lego gave us uh, by by when i say lego i mean the idea of lego being brought together with star wars being brought into video games that enabled us to do something other than tell the stories the stories had already been expertly brilliantly told in in the movies what the video game space enabled us to do was to incorporate those stories into a wider sense that put the player at the heart of an adventure into those universes. And that does make those memories personal because they were unique, they happened to that person. It wasn't the same version of those stories played in every cinema for every player of the game. Everyone went about that game, exploring it and discovering it in their own way. and. That's something that is really special, is special to the medium of video games. And, uh, yeah, again, that we're really lucky to have been able to be a part of.
1: I have one last question, Jonathan. This is a personal question. Um, Star Wars or Indiana Jones?
5: Star Wars means so much because that's where this LEGO game adventure for TT began with LEGO Star Wars. Uh, that was for me personally also uh, the game that I played first with my children when they were youngest. We love Indiana Jones, we rewatch the movies regularly, but we remain, all of us, really active fans of Star Wars as a family. So while I love them both, uh, my heart and my my personal sort of experience is deeply, deeply bound up with Star Wars, we're obviously at the moment deeply, deeply bound up uh, in that universe finishing Lego Star Wars, the Skywalker saga. Um, So our imaginations and dreams are very, very much occupied in that galaxy far, far away.
0: I really like that interview with Jonathan and, and obviously we need to get back to our interview with Matt Schell and Matt Philbrandt. You know, the two wrap things up with the discussion of the surprisingly influential power of a Lego video game, especially, as Jonathan put it, in a galaxy
3: far, far away. I think that, you know, we've said it earlier about the key to these ingredients making it sort of magic come together. This is Matt Schell speaking. You know, there's, this is what we call like a four quadrant game. We really are, it's a, it's a game that is, you know, attractive to kids, to boys, to girls, to parents, to, you know, you name it. And I think having that, you know, the, the sort of spin that we can take on these stories, the stories that are so well known. Like there's very few movie franchises that are so well known in pop culture and to so many people as Indiana Jones and Star Wars. I mean, there's there's something very special about those. And when you can take those stories and change them just a little bit, you know, and put a little bit of a of a, a humorous spin on them, it's sort of fresh all over again. And you're able to sort of, you know, look at things that you knew so well. And just having a little bit of a spin on them makes them so much more attractive to play over again and to relive. There's just nothing else really like it. I mean, I can't think of anything else that would work as well as Star Wars or Indiana Jones.
2: You know, now it sort of seems ubiquitous, but... Hear Matt Philbrand speaking. Back when the first game came out in 2005, think of the gap between 1977 to 2005 and the fact that those of us that grew up with those movies and knew those properties, but there's a generation of of kids... That weren't necessarily that familiar with them. I right. know my own son was convinced there were five Luke Skywalkers until he saw the movie and understand some of the, like, oh no, even though there's five minifigs and they all have different outfits in the game, they're actually the same guy, you know, because he didn't quite, hadn't quite put it all together in, in his head. But, um, you know, we wouldn't, I don't think, ever make a, a game of a movie in another format other than like Lego because you're just giving it such a fresh perspective, as Matt said, that, you know, doing it in HD. One for one, I don't think is what really would be interesting to to our fans. They'd they'd want to watch the movies, but they'd rather see other stories. But Lego, it totally works.
3: Yeah, I think that's a it's a great point that Matt brings up here. Matt Shell again. We really are introducing a whole generation of of people to Star Wars through these games, and that's why you'll see now. You know, a lot of things that we what we consider when we're doing the marketing is we won't even. Talk about the fact here's another spoiler. Since Matt spoiled that um Kylo killed Han Solo, I'm gonna throw out another spoiler, <laughs> which may not this is this is very, very niche, so it may not be as widely known, but um Luke Skywalker's father is a very, very popular character in the Star Wars universe. I'll try I'll try not to ruin it. Okay, thank you. But that's that's something that we don't even really talk about in marketing to the games before so because we don't want people to to for those that are experiencing this for the first time we don't want to ruin that surprise in a you know a, a trailer or a TV commercial we want kids to be able to experience that for themselves we want parents to be able to share that moment with their kids cuz we know a lot of kids have not seen the movies and they are experiencing and learning about Star Wars through these games yeah you know it's interesting
1: i i have a son who's now uh, 19 and he grew up playing these games. And for him, he definitely played the games before he watched the movies. And in fact, we'd play the games together and then we would watch the movies because that was what sort of made him interested in, in both Star Wars and Indiana Jones. And I'm just curious, you, you both mentioned that, but is that something that, uh, I guess, did it bother you all that, that maybe that was the first entry point for some people, the, the games rather than the movies?
3: Wait. Let me just make sure I understand. Did it bother us that we got to go into the conference rooms with the president, <laughs> uh, you know, of our companies, and say, "Hey, Games is introducing kids to Star Wars for the first time"? No, of course not. We uh, love we love being able to tout that. Yeah, I, I mean it's it's amazing. I, I have
1: heard uh, again, not you know, anecdotally that it has done a lot. For uh, at least a, a certain generation of, of gamer and of film watcher, I guess, uh, when it comes to exposing children to, and not just to the movies, but also to, to some Lego toys. Like that game, those games were sort of the entry point to both those worlds, which I, to me is so interesting.
3: Yeah, I mean that's that's absolutely true. We've seen it go in places like E3 and Star Wars Celebration, where you're able to talk to the fans and and talk to families and hear their stories. We know this is a fact that this is Star Wars for them, right? You know, until they're until they're introduced to the movies and TV shows. Excellent. Is there anything else either either of you would like to add about uh,
1: working with uh, TT Games um, with your properties?
2: You know, from the development side, they've been great partners.
0: This is Matt Philbrand speaking.
2: It was uh, a great experience working with them on The Force Awakens, and we're continuing to work with them very closely on uh, the Skywalker Saga, and we can't wait to uh, release that game out to the public uh, soon. Um, but uh, and all our par- and our partners at the LEGO Group, it's one thing when you know you have one. IP holder involved, and it's a much more complicated process when there's multiple stakeholders, but we have a great relationship among the uh, three or four parties, I guess, with Warner Brothers involved as well, and uh, we look forward to bringing more games uh, out to fans in the future.
0: Thanks for listening to our May the 4th special episode. Tune in for Season 2 of Bits and Bricks starting Wednesday, May 26th. Bits and Bricks is made possible by LEGO Games. Your hosts are Ethan Vincent and Brian Crescente. Producing by Dave Tack. Our executive producer is Ronnie Scherer. Creative direction and editing by Ethan Vincent. Writing by Brian Crescente. Mixing and sound design by Dan Carlisle. Music by Peter Primer. And short excerpts from the video game series LEGO Star Wars. We'd like to thank our participants, Matt Philbrandt, Matt Schell, and Jonathan Smith, Additional voice from Tom Stone from Episode 9 of Bits and Bricks. We'd also like to thank the entire LEGO Games team. For questions and comments, write us at Lego.com. That's bits, the letter N, then bricks at lego.com. And as always, stay tuned for more episodes of Bits and Bricks.